Welcome to Kitchen Table Magic. I'm your host, Sam Tang. Each episode, I sit down with an inspiring person from the magic community. We hang out on their kitchen table to talk about Magic the Gathering as they share stories from the journey of their lives. This is the season finale, episode 22. In this episode, I'm talking to Mark Rosewater, the head designer for Magic the Gathering. Mark talks about the past, present, and future of magic with us. We get to hear some stories of Mark's early days before he joined Wizards. And Mark tells us his thoughts on designing magic and how he likes to get feedback from the community. There are plenty of exciting little tidbits that Mark shares with us. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mark Rosewater. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining me on Kitchen Table Magic. I'm here with a very special person right now, Mark Rosewater. Mark, how are you? Hey, I'm doing great. Well, thank you so much for having me. Well, I always love doing interviews, so. <laughs> well, Mark, I'd love to start from the beginning and jump right in. When did you start playing Magic? I started playing Magic in 1993. In fact, the summer of 1993. Uh, what happened was I was working in a game store at the time, part-time, uh, I was writing in LA and I was just going a little stir crazy. So I decided I wanted to get out of my apartment. Uh, and so I took a job at a game store. I thought I would enjoy it. And people kept coming in asking for this game. They didn't even all know the name of it. They just would describe it, you know. And a few of them, I guess, knew the name eventually. I figured out the name. But so this, it was this magic game. And so I'd heard about it, but I didn't have it. Our store didn't sell it. And so I started looking around for it and nobody had it. Uh, and then I was at San Diego Comic-Con, mm -hmm. and I finally got a seat for the very first time. They still wasn't on sale. I couldn't buy it, but I had a chance to finally see it. And then I was at uh, – I think it's called Orcon. There, there's a couple conventions in L.A. I lived in L.A. at the time. And uh, it was a convention in the end of the summer, like around early September, I think. And they finally had magic for sale. And so I bought some magic, and someone taught me how to play. And I, I got in very early. So it was alpha. I got in in alpha. So. Wow. Yep. That's amazing. And when did you make the shift from playing Magic to wanting to work for Wizards? Uh, well, what happened was, so the uh, Wizards put out a magazine called The Duelist uh -huh. uh, b back in the day when people put magazines out. Um, and so what happened was, uh, I was very excited. I was really into Magic. I, f I fell fast. I, I was, you know, I was a player. I wasn't, you know, I, I was just, I loved the game. And so when the magazine came out, I was there wasn't a lot written about magic. So I was just like, really excited. And so I remember I picked it up and I read it the whole thing from cover to cover. And I felt like there wasn't a lot of advanced content in it, that it was very simplistic. So I came up with an idea for something for it, which was a puzzle column. Uh -huh. And the idea was that just like a chess puzzle or a bridge puzzle that I put you mid game and said, okay, you know, win this turn is usually how it worked. So I sent in the idea. I met um, at a convention near us a guy named Steve Bishop uh -huh. who worked for what was organized play at the time. Um, I think it was called Events back then. And uh, he gave me the name of Catherine Haynes, who is the editor-in-chief of The Duelist. So I sent a letter in to, to Catherine and I said, here's my puzzle idea. I, give, I made a couple sample puzzles and then nothing. I heard nothing. <laughs> so I wait, I wait. So finally, I, like months go by, I finally call her up and I – I, you know, I, I get on the phone, I get her on the phone. And I'm like, hi, Catherine, it's uh, Mark Rosewater. I sent these in. Uh, you know, I haven't heard back from you. And she goes, oh, and I go, well, what do you, what do you think of the puzzles? She goes, oh, I like them a lot. And I go, well, are you interested in using them? Oh, yeah, it's in the next issue. Uh huh. And so they had done uh, issue one and a half because one and two was, was spaced apart for some reason. And so they did a mini version called issue one and a half. And so I was in, that's the first puzzle, I was in one and a half. Wow. Um, and so they just said, you, they didn't tell me, they just started using it. And then I talked with her. And so what happened was they started doing the puzzles. 
And then that summer, I flew myself to uh, to Gen Con. Mm-hmm. It was in Milwaukee at the time, and I met up with with Catherine because I wanted to do more for. I liked working for the magazine, and so I pitched myself doing some columns. She goes, well, you know, if you tell me a good idea, I'll let you write it. And so on the spot, I, I sold her two things on the spot. One was a vantage point of Gen Con from a perspective of a Magic player, and I said, let me cover the very first world championship where Zach Dolan beat Patron Lestray. In fact, there's a very famous picture of the two of them playing, and I'm there transcribing things, <laughs> looking very young. Anyway, and so what happened was I started writing for The Duelist, and – I'm a good writer and I knew magic and I turned my stuff in on deadline. And so I kept doing more and more. And then from that, I started doing a lot of freelance work for Wizards just because Wizards was exploding. Magic was exploding. And so they were looking for people constantly. So I ended up doing freelance work for seven different sections of the company. Uh, and they would routinely fly me places off and up to Renton. And I was up in the offices one day and I got to know R&D. And I said, you know what? I'd be willing to move here. And the then vice president of R&D said, well, when could you start? Uh, and that was basically it. So that is so awesome. And, and back in the day, you were down in LA as a writer. Yeah, I, I lived in LA at the time. Yes. And you wrote for the Roseanne Show. I did. I did. I get teased a lot about talking about that. But uh, um, basically, when I graduated from college, I wanted to be a writer. I wanted to write for television. And I spent some time being what's called a production assistant or mm-hmm. a runner. Uh, and then I had my big break. I uh, I got an agent, and then the agent sent me to do a bunch of what we call pitches. And one of my pitches was to Roseanne, and normally what you're trying to do is sell a script. Um, but I had such a good pitch that it was cheaper to hire me than to buy the ideas individually. So they hired me, and I was on uh, part on staff for the fourth season of Roseanne. So That is so cool. Yeah. I, I, uh, if you want to look on Roseanne, it's two episodes. I did the story credit on an episode called, uh, episode called Take My Bike, Please. <laughs> and I have co-created uh, – there's a two-part Vegas episode. The first part is called Vegas, and the second part is called Vegas, Vegas. And I co-wrote Vegas, Vegas. Wow. That's In fact, so cool. the first scene I ever wrote was for Roseanne Barr, um, John Goodman, Tom Arnold, Sandra Bernhardt. And Wayne Newton. <laughs> the first first thing I ever professionally wrote. So Was Johnny Galecki on that show at that time? Uh he just had started at that time, yes. That's so very cool. He, well, I think I think he did. I'm trying to remember. I believe that was the season he started. So I think he was I, I yes, I think he was. Did you ever meet him back in the day? Um actually maybe it wasn't because I don't remember ever meeting him. Hmm. I, I met all I mean, I have pictures with me and all the, you know, the the regular cast. Mm-hmm. Um and he must not have been. I mean, I, the funny thing is one of the people I remember guest starring when we were there was uh, George Clooney uh-huh. had been on um, the very first season of Roseanne. He had, had played a small bit part. And they had him back playing the same role. But this is before you know, he was George Clooney, right? And right. so anyway, I, I would have got a picture of George Clooney if I knew like somehow I could see the future. Go, oh, this is George Clooney. So That's so cool. But, uh, so then in 1995, you decided to move to Seattle and work for Wizards. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I got hired by Wizards oh, and then, right. I, then I moved up here. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I always liked Seattle. I, 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 I had a chance to visit a couple times because Wizards would bring me up to do pro- to do projects. Mm-hmm. And so they would bring me up to Renton. Um, and it's very funny. Like one time I came up to do a project and Wizards had done this like – Let's all have a giant trip where we take everybody of the company off to some trip. And like the, no one was in the office. It's just me working. Everybody, <laughs> all the, the employees were off in some like weekend getaway or something. So, When did you first meet Richard Garfield? I first met Richard Garfield. I think it was – well, what happened was he liked my puzzles. 
And so the first interaction I had with them is I was doing a book on, of magic puzzles, and Richard wrote the foreword. Mm. Um, and I, I, at that point, hadn't met him yet, but he wrote the foreword, that, and I was very touched because he wrote a very nice foreword for me. Um, and then I was at something called Manifest, which was a trading card convention in San Francisco. Wow, that's cool. And I think I think that's the first place I met him was at Manifest. Um, the the thing that was interesting is he knew of me because I was the puzzle guy at the time. Mm-hmm. So like I had a, I had a nice inter- it was easy to introduce myself to him because he knew who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember he invited me up to his room that there were a bunch of them were playing games and he invited me up to play games and I was like really excited because I'd come with a bunch of friends and I'm like okay guys I have to go Richard Garfield just invited me to his room to play games I'm going to play games with Richard Garfield and so. It was very exciting. So that is awesome. Um, and then I, I got to know Richard pretty well. I mean, obviously, I worked with him for many, many years, and so um, he's kind of a mentor to me. So I, I, I always, I did not do game design. I mean, I, I did game design for fun. I mean, I, I, I made games before I came to Wizards, but I wasn't. It was just it's something I did for fun. It wasn't something that I did professionally, and so. Um, it's very funny because a lot of people will say you, you you have no training in game design, and like. You do understand when I started, there was no – you couldn't go to school and study game design. Now you can. Back then, that, that just wasn't a thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, yeah, a lot of it was on the job and, you know, listening to Richard and watching games. And, I mean, I think a lot of getting good at something is just doing it a lot. And so, yes. you know, how do you get good at magic design? Well, do a lot of magic design. And I feel like I look back and I made a lot of mistakes early on. And I, you know, um, I, I mean, I've been doing this for 20 plus years. So, like – I think a lot of just getting good at it is just the repetition of just trying things. The audience will give you feedback very loudly mm-hmm. and very bluntly. <laughs> um, and in taking all that feedback and, you know, I really felt it was super important to in- interact with the audience. And so I've made that a big part of what I do. Um, but I, the secret there is it makes me a better designer that when I understand what the audience wants, I can design better for them. And so the reason I answer so many questions on my blog or I interact so much is I want to know what people want. Um, and... In, in conglomerate, that's the hard part. Like people always think that I want this one individual thing, like, but does that represent what the majority of people want? And it's a balance of trying to make sure there's so many audiences that want so many different things. How do you make sure that every audience gets something that they want, but that you're making every set sort of apply to all the different people who play Magic? That, that's a big challenge. That is fascinating. You are getting a lot of feedback from that, and that improves your design process. I get a lot of feedback. <laughs> uh, I mean, one, one of the things that's very interesting is that I feel like I have a little tiny taste of celebrity that I get to be a big fish in a very small pond. But in that little pond, you know, I get to be a celebrity. And it's very interesting watching like the dynamics. What I've learned is I'm in a perfect situation where I can go somewhere where I – in that one small place, people will ask for my autograph and take pictures. But then I can go to the store and like no one's not letting me shop at the store, you know. (laughs) And so it's it's nice. And uh, I love the magic community that, you know, they they are so genuine and they are very nice and – at times, they'll be harshly critical, but usually it's because they're trying to make the game better. Um, and I always, that's important to keep in mind that no matter how people communicate, that at the crux, what are they trying to say? And not everybody says it in the nicest way, but really, what's the point they're trying to make across? And a lot of what I do is just trying to interact with people to go, okay, what do you really want? Or they ask questions and say, okay, well, you want thing A, but B, C, D, E, there's lots of things you have to take into account. And one of the things I love doing is making people understand why we do what we do, you know, how we do what we do. And there's a lot, there's a neat dynamic where people sort of don't realize things. So I'll give you a good example is, so they were asking me about, they want something on the type line. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, well, it doesn't fit. And so they're like, oh, but there's... 36 characters, and here's a card that is 36 characters. And I'm like, aha, but you're assuming all characters are the same width. 
You know, I can get a lot of L's where you can stick an M. You know, an M's a really wide letter, an L's a very narrow letter. And so the thing you're giving me had letters that, you know, each letter isn't worth one point. They're worth so much width. And so I explained this to people and they're like, wow, I never, ever thought of that. I'm like, well, you know, that's, that's something we have to think about. And so I love when I can get people to see, oh, okay, that's why you did this. Because a lot of times there's things we have to care about that who cares about length of letters? It's not something you care about. But when you're trying to make, you know, when you want the uh, God's equipment, you know, the, the God's equipment in Theros to be equipment, I'm like, okay, they're just, it's got an M in it. It's got, you know, it's a long word and enchantment already has, has long words in it, you know, and that it's just hard to fit that all in. And so I love when I can explain to people why we do what we do. Because um, what I've learned is if the audience understands the reason behind what you do, if they understand what you're trying to do, that they – it answers a lot of questions. A lot of what they want is, why did you do thing A? And like, well, B. And they go, oh, I hadn't thought of that, you know. Uh, and that's what I try to do. I try to make sure that the audience understands why are we doing what we're doing, why we made the decisions we make. Not that they're always going to agree with them. And sometimes things I prioritize, they don't prioritize. I mean, a lot of conflict I find is – a player says, I care about this thing. You're not caring about this thing. And a lot of times the answer is, well, there's other factors and I have to prioritize prioritize other factors over the thing that you care so much about because I, I understand that you care about it, but there's other things that we have to balance and that, you know, it's it's very easy when you look from one perspective to go, I don't, how could you make any decision but this? And a lot of what I try to do is fill it out and say, look, here's all these things to think about. You know, yeah, yeah, that's important. But these other things are important too. Fascinating. It's a holistic approach. It's a feedback. And also a lot of listening that you do, Mark. Yes. People don't realize how much I listen. I, I try. I mean, I, I do talk a lot too. But a, a lot of what I try to do is understand what people want. Um, and it's tricky because people don't all want the same thing. That's what makes it so hard is, I mean, I talk all the time about magic really is not one game. It's multiple games mm-hmm. that have a shared rule set. And it's very interesting to say, like a good example, uh, Ulrich, which was the legendary werewolf, which is like, wow, there's a lot of things out there of what people wanted. And we were trying to do one thing, but we missed a different thing and we made a mistake. And a lot of people wanted thing X, but I didn't understand they wanted it, you know. And so we were trying to fulfill a different role. And then, oh, okay, whoops, we, we missed there. We we assumed the wrong thing. So, like, I have to apply that next time and go, okay, you know, like – it's an ongoing thing. I, I, I know people think sometimes that we, we seem dumb because we make mistakes. And I'm like, I honestly, sometimes I don't know things or things that you assume is a given. Oh, I don't necessarily assume that's a given. Um, and that a lot of times people want things and it's not until we sort of give them something and they go, no, 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 I wanted the other thing that we get to understand something. And that, that that's sometimes hard for people to realize when you have a perspective and it's so clear to your perspective, it's hard to realize that someone from a different perspective might not see the things that are so obvious to you. And that's one of the challenges is trying to sort of constantly figure out what people really want. Because people will say something, but that sometimes isn't the heart of what they really want. And so a lot of communicating with them is, okay, well, you say you want thing A, but why? What about it? What is the thing you... And then when you dig deeper, you're like, oh, I see, I see. This is the thing you care about. And that... It is hard. I mean, we like we make a lot of mistakes. You know, I think we do a lot of things right, but we also are learning. We're always doing new things. We're always changing things. You know, like one of the things that I think that I love about my job is, look, it's never the same job. You know, I've been doing this 20 years. Why am I not bored? Because I'm never designing the same thing. But what that means is, oh, I'm never designing the same thing. I'm doing something different than I've done before. And you know, look, there's certain things I understand about magic that I've done enough times. I get it. I know how it works. But there's other things where like, oh, okay, we're doing, 
you know, we're doing meld cards. We're doing something we've never done before. And it's like, you know, the thing that's very funny is a lot of times we'll try something and we're we're not sure how people will react. And so we'll be cautious on it, you know. Like I I had every faith in meld cards, for example, but a lot of R&D was a little more skeptical. It was a little bit out there. Um, and so like we only did three because we're like, you know what? We want to make sure there's enough for people to like them, but if people don't like them, we want too much. And and the funny things in the end, people are like, "Why only three? You know, <laughs> uh, I mean, same thing with Avs and Restored. Like, we purposely didn't do double face cards because, you know, I love double face cards, but there was a lot of worry about them when the players really liked them, so we didn't do them in the third set of the block. And then the big criticism is, where are all the double face cards? So, you know, anyway, it's it's fun. So funny, Mark. You talked a lot about design. Could you tell us a little bit more about your role as head designer for Magic: The Gathering? So. Basically, so there are two sections in R&D or two parts of the of making cards. There's mm-hmm. a lot of sections in R&D. Um, so essentially the way I explain it is it's a, it's a two-step process. Um, design's role is to take the blank page and make something mm-hmm. and create a structure for it. You know, figure out what are we doing. And usually our responsibility is coming up with mechanics and making sort of the – doing the first version of what we're doing, of saying, this is what it is. This is what the world is. This is what the mechanics are. This is the feel we're trying to go for. This is the emotional resonance we want. We want what is it about? What are we trying to do with it? And then we give it to a second set of eyes, which is the developers. And they're more in charge of the second step of the process. You know, they're trying to keep improving it, but also they have power balance and they do costing and a lot of sort of the, like, I don't pay attention to a lot of the tournaments. That's not my thing. I don't cost cards. I don't determine how powerful they are. That's something development will do. Um, but both of us are just trying to make the funnest game we can. And so by having two different sets of eyes that have slightly different perspectives, it allows us to sort of put everything through where it, it really gets double-checked. Yes. Um, I, I sort of say that development in some ways is like – if designs like a writer that sort of uh, – you know, development is sort of like – a co-writer that's going to overwrite you, that's going to edit things and going to like, okay, I, I see what you're going for here, but ooh, here's how we can make it even better. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of give and take that goes between design and development. Um, I head developer is Eric Lauer, and he and I work very closely together, so we understand what we want, what, what are we mapping, and a lot of what I'm trying to do in design, and I have a whole design team, I have eight designers that, 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 that work on design, is trying to make a bullseye, a target, a vision. Like, what are we trying to do? What is this world about? How do I want the the person who's playing to feel? How do I want the gameplay to mirror the story and the environment we're doing? You know, I'm trying to sort of create an evocative feel, an emotional response, something that's sort of, okay, what does this mean? And then I give it over to the development to say, okay, that that's great in concept, but now let's make it a reality Okay, now that we're actually trying to balance it for standard, what do we have to do to it? You know, that in some level I make the idealized version of it and they make the realistic version of mm-hmm. it. Um, but that lets me push boundaries. Like part of my job is I try not to worry too much about the reality of it because I'm trying to push boundaries and do cool new things. Do the meld cards, do the double face cards, you know, do split cards and hybrid mana and just things were like, okay, we've never done anything like that. How can we stretch and do something new? And then there's a filter, which is important, of people to say, okay, that, that is a grandiose idea, but does it realistically work? Is that something that they can do what we want? And so there's a lot of checks and balances. And so design sort of, I get to be the pie in the sky, you know, trying to imagine all sorts of crazy things. And then I pass over to, to people that are being a little more realistic to go, oh, okay, but yeah, can we make that work in standard? Interesting. And so, Mark, how do you and your team decide what direction to go into? 
a lot of it is was a combination of things. First off, we want to look at where we are in context. So like once upon a time, we would make everything in a vacuum. Like early magic was like, I'm going to make a cool card and just I'll make whatever the cool card is. And then little by little, we're like, well, let's make sure the set itself is cohesive. And then it's like, well, let's make sure the block is cohesive. And now it's like, let's make sure the whole environment is cohesive. Uh-huh. That I understand right now. The, the blocks two before a set, whatever block I'm working on, the blocks two before will be in standard with it, and the blocks two after will be in standard with it. So it's always about, okay, what am I doing? What did I do before? And I talk about magic being a pendulum, like a sort of a, on a rope over a you know pit of sand. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to keep pushing the pendulum in different directions. But it's going to always keep coming back to center. There's a default. And then no matter where I push it, wherever, whatever the boundaries are, it's always going to sort of keep coming back. And so the role of magic design is to say, okay, let's push this aspect into a slightly different place. But our goal is to make it magic. I could change so many things about the game that you wouldn't recognize it, but that's not the goal. Right. And so what I want to do is say, how can I change just a few things that are fundamentally different and keep everything else mostly the same and make magic keep feeling different. Mm-hmm. So I, I've talked about this a lot. So the, the crispy hash brown theory that what I think makes magic a special game is when you have hash browns, the, the best part is the crispy outer layer. Right. That's just the And then once you eat through that, you'll eat the inside. And this is not as good as the crispy outer part. And to me, what games are, the crispy outer shell is the learning of the game. That is just a real fun part of, of when you play games of discovering and learning about it and going, oh, this and that and figuring it out. But the problem is most games, once you get past that stage, the, the middle, if you will, is – Okay, well, I've gotten good enough at chess. Now I, I have to memorize opening moves. Or I've got good enough at Scrabble. Now I'm going to memorize two and three letter words. Then I start getting the rote part of it where I'm just trying to study what people before me have done. But magic, because it keeps constantly evolving, keeps kind of regrowing its outer shell. Mm-hmm. And that our, our hash brown is always crispy. And that what, that's – like people who play magic, I think our average player right now has played nine and a half years. Ah. The average game doesn't last nine and a half years. Like our average player has played longer than the average game in glass. And wow. then the reason is, is that magic keeps changing. You know, it keeps evolving. It keeps – and so part of our job on the design end is to keep finding new places to take it, keep finding new things to do with it. I mean, that's a challenge. Uh, I, I sometimes compare the audience to to the Borg from Star Trek. Uh, and one of the qualities of the Borg is that they learn and adapt. And so anytime I do a trick, anytime I do something, well, the audience, they learn and adapt to it. And now if I do that trick again, they go, no, 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 we know that trick. And so uh-huh. I'm constantly trying to find new and different ways to do things. Like something that would shock the audience 15 years ago. Like I could sh- – in the early days of magic, it wasn't hard to shock people. There's lots <laughs> of things we hadn't done. But now we're 23, you know, 23 years in. Like we've done a lot of stuff. And so if I want to sort of do something that's really different, well, I've mined all the obvious things. And so a lot of design now is finding interesting places we can mine that still aren't too complex, that aren't – you know, I want the game to be simple enough that people can follow it. I mean, the game's complex. There's lots of depth to the game. But I want to make sure that the the, the basic essence of what each set is, is you, you can get it in a nutshell. Like, oh, it's this thing. I want, you know, we make Shadows of Innistrad. Well, what is it? You know, it's like, okay, well, we're returning to Innistrad, but we have a, a cosmic horror vibe going on. Or we're going to Theros. Okay, we're trying to do Magic's take on Greek mythology. Or we're going to Kaladesh, right? We're like, okay, we want to do steampunk, but a magic way, a way you've never seen steampunk before. Which we've done, by the way. It's awesome. Um, you'll see that soon. <laughs> well, we're very much looking forward to it. And what you're talking about, Mark, is a balance of simplicity, nostalgia, adhering to the rules of the game and also the flavor of the game, but also that crispy bit. Really something different that people haven't seen before and are excited for. 
Right. The thing is, every single magic game has to both be enough of magic that people recognize it and it's comfortable, that they know what it is, that it's magic, and then enough newness that it feels like, oh, the pendulum's gone in a different direction. This is something I haven't seen before. Or this is revisiting something I have seen before, but yay, I'm, we're back in this place, you know, and that a lot of trying to design for magic is to every time I tell you what we're doing next, I want you to be excited. Yeah. That, that, that is our goal. And so we work really, really hard. Like every time I announce something, I want you to be really, really excited. And one of the things, I mean, I, we have such a good group of people. Like, I know our slate. Like, I, I literally, uh, I've been in meetings for 2022. Like, I, I know where we're going. And there's so much. <laughs> the, 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 one of the things people ask me, the hard part of my job is, there's so many cool things we're doing. Like, Kaladesh is an awesome, awesome block. And the block after that, you guys don't even know the name for, that too is an awesome block. And the block after that, oh, wow. That's, like, this block after block after block, we keep doing cool and different things. And we keep pushing the pendulum in different places. Like, Kaladesh is is really, really different from Shadows of Innistrad. Shadows of Innistrad was dark and moody. That is not Kaladesh at all. You know, Kaladesh is bright and optimistic and a really exciting set in a way that's very different than what we just offered, which also was really cool. But the idea is, how do we keep doing that? How do we constantly excite you? But in order to excite you, I can't just do what we did before. I have to find something new and different. And so we're constantly doing that. That's great. Just to even wonder about who the villain is in Kaladesh must be. Not the Eldrazi. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Wonderful. And also, Mark, I wanted to ask you, a lot of players often look to magic history for, Mm -hmm. I wish... XYZ card would come back. Yeah. Um, and uh, in an interview that you did uh, almost 16 years ago, I think, six, yeah, almost 16, 16 years, years ago, okay. um, we talk about Ball Lightning and Deranged Hermit. And in some instances, those cards have come back, but in their appropriate power levels given the current meta. So Ball Lightning kind of came back as Spark Trooper in Return to Ravnica, mm-hmm. and Deranged Hermit in a certain form came back as Ishkana Graf Widow. Well, a perfect example where there's a very big difference between Ball Lightning and... Um, Spark Trooper. And Spark Trooper. Mm-hmm. Um, or, and also a difference between it and Hermit Druid. I mean, not mm-hmm. Hermit Druid. Uh, what did you say? Uh, Deranged Hermit. Deranged Hermit, yeah. Um, that's confusing my uh, my, my scroll cards. Um, <laughs> so the, the, the thing that... Um, one of the things is we do things and we do cool things and... I mean, development works really hard on the power level, and sometimes things are slightly over, slightly under. Um, it's not, for example, that we won't revisit ideas. That, like, for example, Ball Lightning is a cool card. We've revisited Ball Lightning many, many times. We've yes. done a lot of Ball Lightning variants. Mm-hmm. Um, now, it turns out that Ball Lightning itself is good, but not creatures back in the day weren't quite as powerful as as we, the creature curve got better. So the funny thing is Ball Lightning, I think, probably is the kind of card that's not too much over the curve, where Deranged Hermit has all sorts of issues with it. It's really powerful. It's got Echo, which is a mechanic that we probably, the players didn't like too much, so I don't know if that's coming back anytime soon. Um, but it's also a super powerful card. It's a really, um, like, it was something that defined part of the environment it was in. Um, and so what we want is... I want to play into nostalgia. I want to definitely revisit things people like. But in the same sense, I want to make sure that one of the things I have to do, and this is the ongoing dichotomy of design, is that I have one audience, which is a franchise audience. They know things. And whenever I do something, oh, that's like this, and that's like this, and they know the history of the game. On the other side, I have the brand new player who's like everything is new to them. And no matter what I do... Like, I can't make nostalgia that makes the old player happy and the new player goes, I have no idea what what, what this is. I mean, Time Spiral was this. We're like, <laughs> the old player's like, this is awesome. And the new player's like, I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> you know. And so we have to find a way to blend nostalgia in a way that even if you don't understand what it's referencing, in a vacuum, it is still cool. 
Right. And that's one of the things we're always working on is how do we take all these different audiences, whether it's based on format, it's on how long you've been playing, it's based on how often you play, it's based – like whatever the factor is, we want to make sure that all the audiences are happy and there's things for everybody. And one of the big lessons, it's like if you listen to me on my podcast or on any of my blog or whatever, one of the reoccurring themes I have all the time is not everything is for you. Mm -hmm. One of the biggest problems I find that players have is that they want to look through the lens. I mean, rightfully, they have a lens of how they see the game. Right. So they want to look through the game through that lens. And through that lens, there's things we do that make no sense. Why would you ever do thing thing X? Right. And the answer is, well, not everything is for you. Not everything's from your vantage point. Not everything, you know, there's people that like things that you hate. That you absolutely hate. Right. In fact, right. there are people that say, what are the cards that everybody else hates? I'm going to play those cards. Yeah. So, like, there are just people, no matter what we do, that there's different people want different things. And I, in order to make magic a game for everybody, what that means is I have a lot of cards. Well, not every card is good for every player. And that takes a little while to learn to go, why would they make this card that to me is absolute junk? Well, Yes, it is absolute junk for you. That doesn't mean it's made for you. And I spent a lot of time saying, you know, we want to make everybody happy. We want to make sure that every set has something for every player, but not every card is for every player. And trying to learn that if you don't like something, who does like it? Now, we occasionally make cards that no one likes. I mean, I'm not saying that we don't goof up from time to time. But usually if we make a card that you don't like, somebody does like that card. Let's figure out what the card's doing. Why is that card here? Is it for limited play? Is it something interesting limited? Is it a commander card? Is it a modern card? Is it a, a pauper card? Is it, I mean, there's so many formats and so many different ways to play Magic. What are we up to? Why are we doing it? And another thing we like to do is I don't want everything to be obvious. I don't uh. want to just make cards in which... You see it, and the first time you know exactly what to do with it. Right. I want to make cards that you dismiss and then later learn they're not they're not as bad as you think. Or cards that do something weird and you have to figure out how to use them. You know, I, I I like that what we do makes the audience think and that I want the audience to think. And sometimes people give very gut reactions to things. Like it's very fun. Like we'll put cards on and I'll go watch people react to cards and you know, some cards are obviously powerful, and those usually people go, like, oh, this seems like a good card. And some cards, like, I don't know what to do with it. And people are like, this is a junk card. Like, well, think about it, you know. There have been a lot of very famous cards, cards that ended up being really powerful cards, that the first impression was, this seems like a dumb card. Why'd you make this card? Interesting. I mean, like, when Tarmogoyf came out, the initial reaction was, what? What is this junky card? And it took months for people to realize, oh, this is one of the best creatures ever printed. Wow. You know, and that 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 is neat that magic allows us to sort of make cool things and that, hey, there's a discovery, that that's a big part of magic and that we want to build that discovery in the game. Absolutely. There's a lot of replayability. And like you said, Mark, it's a thinking game. And so players settle in, go deep and really discover things about the game over and over and again. And even when new sets are being released, sometimes, for example, in eternal formats or modern formats, older cards suddenly spike, that they suddenly become relevant because of the way the rules are. Well, you said something I want to respond to. Sure. Uh, you said it's a thinking game. Mm-hmm. And the thing that's interesting about it is it is a thinking game. There's lots of thinking you can do, but it's not just a thinking game. One of the things I spend a lot of time here at Wizards is making people understand the psychology of the game. Mm. And that a lot of what – when you design something, I'm really big on how does this make the player feel – not just where are they going to think about it, and thinking is important, but also how are they going to feel about it? Because really, in the end of the day, whether once you play a game, when you decide, am I going to bother to play this game again, it's not really about how much it made you think. It's about how much it made you feel. Right. And that I, 
I think people love to think that like we're driven by our intellect. Eh, if you actually do a lot of studying in psychology and stuff, we're driven more by our emotions than we are by our intellect. And that we rationalize with our intellect. We, like The way people tend to function is they emotionally make decisions and then rationalize why they did them. Mm-hmm. That's a very common you know, human behavior. Um, so part of designing is I want people to think and I we do a lot to make people think, but I also want to make people feel. Mm-hmm. That's a big part. And that like, um, you know, I walk into a design saying, what is it the audience is going to feel when they do this? Mm-hmm. And then I design and pick mechanics and pick cards because that's the that's what we're trying to evoke out of people. Mm-hmm. The minute you said that it's all also about uh, psychology and passion and emotion and what people feel, it just brought me back when uh, there was Battle for Zendikar and then Oath of the Gatewatch. I refused to play Eldrazi (laughs) because I did not identify with the villains. And then also when I built black-white control in this standard season, I felt odd that Obnixilus was in my lineup, even though he messed things up. I was like, this is an odd, odd feeling that he's here. So one of the things that I think Magic does really well, Mm -hmm. um, one of the big secrets of Magic's success is the role the colors play, the color Mm -hmm. pie. And that one of the things that's really interesting was, so I... I'm on a team that um, is helping with the movie. We're trying to make a magic movie, and I'm on the, the, the there's a small group of team that interacts with them. Awesome. And so one of the things I got to do was I said, look, I want let me explain the color wheel to the, to our partners. I said, you know, you can't understand magic to understand the color wheel. Uh-huh. So I got, I don't know, they gave me 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And so I went to town and I, I did this big presentation and I had pictures and samples from all these pop culture and stuff. And when I was done, it's funny, they looked at it, they go, that is amazing. They go, we should use that to apply to everything we think of. Like they really, <laughs> that magic has this neat component to it that I don't, not everybody really thinks about, but there, there is an ethos built into the game and that the reason mechanics, the reason colors work they do and the mechanics work they do is all based on this flavor, stuff that Richard had set up that is really interesting and neat. The, the, the fact that the colors, they have allies and enemies and it, anyway, I think, I think there's a lot of emotional resonance that's just baked into the game itself. That the right. colors, like when I, when I meet someone who's never played magic, one of the first things I tend to do is talk colors with them mm-hmm. because colors are really compelling and resonant no matter who you are. Mm-hmm. That when I start explaining black magic, people start nodding their heads. I don't get. I don't have to go much into black magic. But they go, oh, I know, you know. And each of the colors has a sense of. But I just explain a little bit. They're like, oh no, I know what you mean. Yeah. And I think that is really cool. That's one of the things about the game I love is that there's so much sort of um, psychology and it, all this is woven into the game. Right. And that when you choose to play something like you're saying, like you're playing a white black deck, you're like I don't know, I'm you know some of these black cards are you know. I think that's great. Like I love that people associate with colors. They identify. Like one thing we've learned about factioning, whenever we take colors and faction them, it's always a hit. You know, two colors, three colors. People love when we sort of divvy things up. And and I do a lot of articles about color philosophy. People always love the color philosophy. Um, like I did a podcast on the single colors and I did on the double colors. People are like, okay, <laughs> when's the three color? You know, that, that people really enjoy that. Yes. And I've been following you a lot on Mark on Twitter about these head to heads. You're creating yes. these brackets. Can you tell us more about that? Um, so basically what happened was I had an idea back when I, I was asked to put together the modern day website. Mm-hmm. Uh, Magic back in the day, I mean, loosely had a website, but not really and nothing with updating content. And so I got assigned to sort of make the vision for the website. Uh, and in fact, I ended up hiring Aaron Forsyth to run the website. Uh-huh. Um, this is how we, Aaron first got hired in the, in the building. And we spent a lot of time sort of figuring out how to do that. 
in the early days, I worked very close with Aaron to try to get content for the website. Yes. So there's an idea I came up with that I really liked, what I called head-to-head. And the idea was, let's just every day make brackets and have people fight these brackets. Yeah. And there's a lot going on, and so it didn't happen. And I would bring it up from time to time. And they're like, oh, but we have to make software. We don't have the software. So one day I'm on Twitter, and Twitter's like, brand new, you know, uh, <laughs> brackets. And I'm like, oh, I can do this. So I just started doing it. And so, um, and then what happened was, at first it's like, oh, this will be fun. And then R&D, I said, well, I'll, I'll, before I start this, I'll just hand this out to R&D. Like, okay, here's the brackets. R&D filled them out. And everybody, like, I like I really didn't expect this, but like everybody filled it out. Like I, I got like 50 people filling them out. And then what I did was I ended up getting a trophy, which I called the bragging trophy. And uh-huh. then in R&D, if you win, you get the trophy for three weeks till it takes three weeks to do the next head to head. But the thing I loved about it is I love the idea of doing something that's quick and bite sized and lets the audience give opinion and l- l- lets us play into all the different aspects of magic. Uh, and the idea of the head to head is, look, I can, I'll take some aspect and I'll keep changing it up. Like right now I'm doing classes. Like That's do you right. like wizards better than ninjas? Do you like, you know, today I think it was scout versus druids? Yeah. Like, you know, what do you like? And people get very passionate and they argue about it. And like it's funny how I just started this up and like it's like tripled my um my Twitter impressions. Uh-huh. Just because so many people are voting and talking and retweeting. And anyway, so it's been fun and, and it's became a little game. In fact, I made a meta game too. So we now play a game every time that you can win the trophy. Uh-huh. But then we made a meta game where if you're of a lowest score, you get knocked out. <laughs> uh, and so okay. we're down to 13 people are left right now. And okay. so, like, but anyway, it's, it's something I'm constantly looking. I have two jobs in some way. In one way, I have a designer job. Mm-hmm. Another job, I have a sort of a spokesperson job. Um, or interact with the public. And so one of the things I try to do is I want to keep you entertained. I want you to come to my social media. I want to involve you, in, make you interact. I want to get information out of you. Head-to-head actually has been very information. We get information out of it and we've used the information. So like there are head-to-head that because of the head-to-head reactions and learning from it, we've we've changed products because of it. Wow. So like it's not even – I mean I started it because it's fun, but it ended up being something that actually was quite – interesting and valuable and it doesn't mean by the way when something you love loses that like it's doomed to never see the light of day <laughs> it just means when things surprise us you know when something happens that like oh i didn't expect that mm-hmm. uh and that it's interesting to see and go oh wow well maybe people like this thing more than i realized and we will put feelers on and test that but yeah anyway it started really to be entertaining yeah and it's ended up being a lot more than that mark a lot of players are very eager to ask you about the future of magic the Gathering. okay what can you tell us about what is coming up in the next five years uh, here's what I can tell you is I believe of every set that I know we're doing, of every set, and I'm talking years out, that every time we announce one of these, we're just going to excite a lot of people. Like, uh-huh. like it is amazing how we keep finding really interesting places to go. Like, for example, some of it is brand new places you've never seen before. We have worlds coming up that you've never, ever seen before. And like, there's one world coming up where... I didn't even understand it was first pitch to me. Like, what is this? You know, like, I didn't quite understand it. And then once I wrap my brain around, I'm like, okay, wow, this is really cool. Wow. You know, and that we're going back to places we've been before. Ooh. You know, we're we're like, one of the things we try to do is like every, about half the time we want to go to new places, about half the time we want to revisit places. Yeah. So when we go to new places, what are brand new things we've never done? But also, what are things players have wanted that we haven't yet delivered on? We looked at some of that. Um, when we revisit places, we're like, well, what do people really like that we've done? What are places people might not expect us to return to? What are places, you know, like we're always looking to say, what can we do? Because Here's my goal is every time I announce something, when I show you the set for the very first time, I want the audience to gasp. Mm-hmm. I want them to go, oh, 
You know, th- that's the response I want. And yeah. I feel like we have just years and years of that coming up. Wow. Like I could go off in any set of, of any block of the next, you know, seven years and go, there's something really cool coming that we're doing. Now, I know stuff like Kaladesh is done. It's exciting. It's awesome. I know you're going to love it. And I, I know everything about it because it's done. Then, look, there's a set in 2022 that I'm doing real preliminary work on. Like, okay, I don't know everything about it. I know <laughs> I know the very basics that we're trying to figure out. Uh-huh. And like, but, but, but the kernel of that, just the, the, the kernel of it is something that I like will make people gasp. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. That that's every time we're doing a block now, the idea is I want to announce we're doing this and I want people to just go, go a little, get excited when we announce it. That I want everybody to do that gasp and that. Yeah. There's so much awesome stuff coming. There's so much really, really cool stuff coming that, like, I'm not allowed to talk about, which is really sad because, like, here's the hard part. I will work on something for years, Uh for years, (laughs) and then I will be hands-off it for about 16 months. So, like, Kaladesh comes out this fall. Mm -hmm. The last time I – I mean, I poke my head in. But the last time I it was under my control was about 16 months ago. Oh, wow. It was, like, the spring of 2000. 15. Uh huh. So, like, that's the last time I like had day to day contact with it, you know, and that I'm really excited. I was really excited when I made it. I'm very excited now. And, like, when we finally get to talk, the reason I'm always excited is I've been wanting to talk about it forever, and finally we're doing it. And, like, yay, I finally get to talk about this thing, <laughs> you know. I mean, one of the things that's also real hard is that, like, it's not even just sets. Like, one of the things that we're constantly improving upon magic, we're improving how we make magic, we're improving on our processes. Like there's all these things we've changed, but I don't talk about it to the audience until you see what it what it means. Yeah. Like we started doing exploratory design, but until Content Arc here came out, well, there's no reason to explain it to you. This is the set that introduced the concept. There's a lot of that too. There's a lot wow. of like we're constantly improving our process. Mm-hmm. Like R and D is not resting on its laurels. We're not just doing the thing we've done before. And one of the things that's really interesting is we are pushing boundaries. We are changing things. We are willing to rethink how we make magic. We're not doing it in a timid way. Mm-hmm. We're doing it in a bold, like we are constantly trying to make magic better. And one of the things I've always found in my time here is that every time I look back, I'm like, magic, that was good, but there's a way to do it better. Yeah. You know, and that I, I keep looking at different, like I talk about like the ages of magic design. And I feel like, look, the first age is what we built upon to make the second age. So the first age was awesome for its day, for what it did. But the second age is better than the first age because we built on the first age and made it better. That's right. And now we're living in the sixth age of magic design. And I feel like the technology has improved and we keep, you know, if I can see farther, that's because I stand on the shoulder of giants. That's, that's the quote. And I feel like we're doing things that I could not imagine. Like, it's funny. I go back to when I first started at Wizards. We're doing things now that if you said to me, would we ever do this? I would go, no way. No way we would ever do that. Uh-huh. And I'm like, and now the funny thing is, like once upon a time, I would suggest something kind of crazy, like split cards or something. And people are like, oh my God, what are you doing? And now I, I, I pitch crazy ideas and like a few people go, what are you doing? But more people go, ah, okay, I can see us <laughs> doing that. And it, 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 it's kind of funny that like, just what is possible, the boundaries of what we can do, we keep stretching, we keep pushing, and like the future is really bright. Awesome. Like, all I can say is I can tell you nothing about it other than I'm really proud of it. There's really cool stuff coming. You will gasp when you hear it. Like when you see Kaladesh, you will gasp. When we tell you what the next set is after that, you will gasp. When we tell you what the set after that is, you will gasp. Like, each time we tell you new things, there's just exciting stuff there. I love that. And Mark, earlier you said about the magic movie. Mm-hmm. Could you talk about that? Is it going to be some like huge process? Here's what I can say. I can't say a lot. Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you yeah. what I'm allowed to say. And I will, the caveat is I can't say a lot. Yeah. Um, we signed a deal with Fox. Uh-huh. 
Um, it was a two-year deal to option a picture. Mm-hmm. We're working with Genre Studios, okay. which is a very big studio. Uh, Simon Kinberg runs it. He does the X-Men movies. He did The Martian. He did Cinderella last year. But he he if you look at a lot of like Fox's top films, he's the guy behind it. He's uh-huh. awesome. Um, so what happened is we're working with them, and our goal is to make not just – a good magic movie. Mm-hmm. We want to make a good movie. Okay. What we wanted is we want to make an awesome movie. If you've never ever heard of magic, this is an awesome movie. You want to see this movie. Yes. If you know magic, you're gonna be beside yourself because this is an awesome movie and it's a magic movie. You know. Yes. And so one of the things we're working really hard with them is to say, look, you're the experts in making movies. We're an experts in magic. Let's combine us. Let's make an awesome movie that is true to magic. Yes. And. I love our partners. I think we're doing really cool stuff. It's slow going. Yes, it is. Um, and so, like, I, I can't announce anything until yeah. things happen. But yeah. I will say I'm very optimistic on the people and the process. Uh-huh. And I feel that, like, there will come a day when I can sit down in front of a microphone and get really excited because I'm actually talking about the movie. Not at that day yet, but I, I'm very optimistic. And that I think when the process began, if you said to me, what percentage do you think that we're going to have an awesome magic movie? You know, when the first process way in the beginning, I'm like, ah, 5%, 10%, you know, and now I'm like 50%, 60%. Like I'm, I'm excited. Like, it's, yeah. I, I, like there's so much going on. There's so many moving pieces and, you know, it's a very complex thing yes. and it's not us doing it. It's our partners doing it, right. but we are trying to be the best partners we can. And that I, and there's three other people who are on the team, like we want to make sure we represent magic the best we can. And yes. so we're working really hard and that, you know, I care very much about story. My background's in story. I care very much about magic, you know, and that I really want to make sure we're making something awesome. Um, unfortunately, because it's all, you know, our partners are doing good work and I don't want to undercut anything they're doing. So until they announce things, I can announce nothing. But I'm happy to say that we're doing good work and I, there will be a day. There will be a day yeah. where I, there's a magic movie, I, I believe, that will be an awesome movie. Is it just going to be one or is it going to be like a long series like Harry Potter, Lord of the Rings? I mean, the reason movies? Fox was interested in us, nobody makes the nobody ever makes something without the idea of making more than one. Yeah. But if the first one isn't good, it doesn't matter. Ah, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So, I mean, yes, that, that, ideally what we would like, yes, of course, a giant franchise of magic movies. That's that's everybody's dream. That's our dream. That's our producer's dream. That's the movie studio's dream. Um, but what we know is, look, if the first one isn't good, it doesn't matter. Right. So let's let's start by making an awesome magic movie. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I talked about this with uh, Nathan Holt a little bit earlier, and he was like, I would love to just be a tree folk, <laughs> just to get him on full on makeup. And uh, he has an acting background. And so, yeah, yeah very funny. Well, th- I appreciate that, Mark. Thank you very much. I know the entire community is just buzzing with that news, and we're all very much looking forward to it. I, I promise when there's news to tell, I will tell. I say this in my blog all the time. I love telling people news. When there's news that I can tell, I will be the first person to tell them. But I will. I can't tell you things till I can tell them. And I will. Once I have things to tell, I will gladly tell people stuff. But just ha- have faith. I mean, there, there, there's good people working on it. Have faith. Absolutely. And we talked a lot about the future. Mm-hmm. Mark, what advice do you have for new players just joining the game? Um, what I will say is magic is a game of discovery. And that one of the things I love about magic, and I'll say this to any new player, is explore. That there's a wonderful community and many communities out there. There's lots of cool places to do things. There's lots of interesting places to play. There's people to talk with. There's communities to discuss with. There's so many different ways to experience magic. Like, for example, I love what's going on right now with the cosplay community. You know, yes. Things that have really embraced magic and say there's all sorts of fun ways to do it. And that's just one completely different way. You know, there's so many different ways to interact with the game that when you get in the game, what I want to say to people is explore. 
There's so many facets to this game, both in ways to play the game or communities about the game or ways to interact with the game. Go out, learn, you know, that I think if you go out and you start studying and go online and see all the things that exist, what you will find is there's a niche for you. That magic is really good at being adaptable, at being a, that flexible, that magic can adapt to be what you want it to be. You just have to find the people that share that interest with you. I love that. Mark, do you have any advice for players that are trying to improve and hoping to get onto the Pro Tour one day? Yes. Uh, this is my best advice to someone who wants to get better. The reason that you're not as good as you can be is you. And that one of the things you have to understand is as long as you're not the cause of your mistakes, you will never get better. That part of becoming a good magic player is saying, there are things that I am doing that are keeping me from being as good as I can be. And until I'm willing to look inward and figure out why I'm making mistakes and what mistakes I'm making and how to improve them, that's when you will get better. And you won't get better until you accept the fact that you have control over the things that you need to to get better. That if everything is, oh, I just got unlucky or whatever. I just got a bad matchup. If everything is not your fault, well, and by the way, if you want to live like that, fine. But if you want to get better, you have to accept that things you are doing are causing you to lose more than you than you should. And that if you look introspectively and figure that out, you'll start to realize, oh, there's things I can do. And once you make that leap, once you understand that you are responsible for your own success, and it's a good life lesson, I guess. But you, you you, will then be able to make the changes to get better. Wise words. Mark, if you could give something to every Magic player, what would it be? If I could give something to every Magic player, um, the appreciation for the color pie. Okay. I mean, not that everybody needs. I mean, the great thing about Magic is care about the things you care about. But my love of Magic, I think, is I, I love the color pie. I think it is a really fascinating thing. I've done articles upon articles and podcasts upon podcasts and... If you've never read any of them, if you're interested at all, I would recommend – like I just did a series of Color Pie articles I think last year um, and I did – I've done podcasts on them. The colors are really fascinating. The philosophies are fascinating, how the mechanics come out of the philosophy, how the colors relate to each other. I think it's something that a lot of people, if they don't know about, would have a lot of fun if they they, they dug into it. And what I, I find a lot of people when they do that is they realize how much they learn not just about the game but just life in general. That just seeing a lot of philosophies and thinking about how you think about the world really can have a good – in fact, not just on your gameplay but just on you as a person. Mark, thank you so much. Do you have any asks or requests of the listening audience? Asks or requests? That's a fine question. Um, what I would say is if you care about the game and you have feelings about the game, I, I have a Twitter, at Maro254. I have a Tumblr, which is Mark Rosewater slash Tumblr dot Tumblr. Um, I ha I'm on Instagram. I'm on Google+. I'm all over the place. You have my ear. I, I, I literally, you email me. I read all my email, the emails at the bottom, every column I write. Um, I answer, like I've done my blog now for five years and I believe I've answered over 80,000 questions. Wow. So like I want to know what people, like if you have a way that you think we can make mag magic better, either it's something we're doing wrong that you think we can do differently, something we're doing right that you want us to see do again. If there's a, a world you want us to revisit, if there's a mechanic you want to see again, I, I can't hear unsolicited stuff. I can't hear things we – you can't give me a brand new mechanic that I don't know. That I can't hear. But if, if you have any interest in how you think magic can be better without soliciting new, new material, if you want to go back to some place or reuse something or there's just something you love or hate or whatever, let me know. You have my ear that I ask you to tell me what you think. 
that the way I will get better and I will deliver a better game to you is you telling me what you want. So if you've never bothered to interact with me, interact with me. Tell me what you want. Ask me a question. Write to me on, on Twitter, through my email, whatever. There's lots of places to do it. Interact with me. Tell me what you want. I am dying to hear from all the players and I hear from a tiny fraction. I'd love to hear from more people. Thank you so much, Mark. We are so excited about everything that's coming up. And thank you so much for everything that you do. I really want to acknowledge you. Your passion and love for the game and the community has brought joy to millions of people around the world. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. That's very nice to say. So I I love what I do. I love my job. I love magic quite a bit. So the one of the reasons it's always fun to talk about magic is I really think magic is a positive force for good. I think that it brings a lot of happiness and joy to people. And so I love being able to expose more people to magic. So thank you. Thank you for interviewing me. Wonderful. And we will have all the links on the show notes at kitchentablemagic.org. Mark Rosewater, thank you so much for sitting down with me today. Oh, you're very welcome. Wow, what a fascinating conversation. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Mark Rosewater. As you heard Mark say, he loves to get feedback from the community, and he reads every single one of his emails and messages. Check him out on his blog on Tumblr, markrosewater.tumblr.com. He's on Twitter at Maro254. That's at M-A-R-O-254. Links to all of Mark's social media will be at kitchentablemagic.org. Remember, Mark says that he hears from just a tiny fraction of us in the community, and he wants to hear more from us out there. So if you're out there and you have thoughts and feedback, please let Mark know. Well, that's it for season one of Kitchen Table Magic, and what a season it's been. When I first started this humble little podcast back in May of 2016, I thought I was barely going to squeeze out eight episodes. And I really did sell magic cards to fund buying equipment for the show, such as buying microphones and audio interfaces. And now looking back, season one has 22 episodes with some of the most amazing people in the community. I want to thank all of my guests and how they generously shared with the community their lives and told stories for the show. Travis Wu, Christine Sprankle, Adam Yurchek, Wedge from the Mana Source, Chris Verderer, Damon Morris, Nathan Holt, Kenji Egashira, Chris Morris-Lent, Jerry Thompson, Brian Rowe, Chris Pakula, Tifa Robles, Jordan Isaka, Brian Brown-Dewin, Chris Van Meter, Josh Monks, Jennifer Long, Richard Wheatley, Sid Blair, Elaine Bergeau, and Mark Rosewater. Thank you all so much for being the cast of Season 1. Special thanks to friends of the show, Brian Anderson, Travis Padilla, and Kayla Tippy for their help and support. Shout out to the Facebook groups Magic the Seattling and Magic for Good. These are the two Facebook groups that I polled to help come up with the name of this show, Kitchen Table Magic. I also want to thank and acknowledge mtgcast.com, the largest network of magic podcasts for having me in your lineup. If you've enjoyed the music in the show, I want to thank Needle Drop Co. in Portland, Oregon. They help curate the music on freemusicarchive.com. And we feature songs by the bands Broke for Free, Minden, Yee Yee, David Sezi, Jazar, State Shirt, and Kai Angle. Our theme song is appropriately named Play the Game and is composed by Entracto. You can check out all of Entracto's music at soundcloud.com slash Entracto. Show notes for each episode are at kitchentablemagic.org. I'm your host, Sam Tang, and I want to thank you all so much for listening to Season 1. Season 2 is in the works and will be released early in 2017. I have more interviews on the way with even more amazing people from the community. I hope you will join us, and until then, thank you for listening to Kitchen Table Magic. 